Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to those of you who are tuning in again and our loyal listeners and a big welcome as well to those of you who are new. I know that is something that a lot of people do when they're listening to a podcast and I certainly do it as I've got my shows I regularly listen to, but I also will listen to some shows just because I like the guest. And that may well be the case for this show for many people because of the popularity of the guest, Mitch Schultz, who's well known for producing a number of great films, perhaps most famously for making DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which is a cult classic within the psychedelic community. So I'm aware of that. And and thanks to many of the new listeners. And I'd like to talk a little bit about what we cover on the content of the show, not only for people who are new, but also for people who have been listening regularly, because this is episode number 21 now. And so I've sort of taken a look back in the review mirror at kind of what those first 20 episodes were like, what I tended to cover in terms of the content and how the show might evolve in the near future, how things might look a year from now. You know, the show is very much about promoting a holistic approach to understanding oneself. So things that fall within physical, mental, emotional health are definitely all within the topic of the show. Now, that's a broad range of interest. Perhaps it's too broad, some marketers would say, for you know, really defining an audience. And I've begun to think about that. And I would welcome anyone's feedback on that front. The reason the show's interests are eclectic are twofold. You know, I'll just confess to being, you know, very ADHD and having an eclectic set of interests myself. It's also because I'm very interested in what makes people not only happy, but what makes people flourish. And as I'm on that journey myself, I want to share that with other people. And so, you know, I'd love to focus on one thing like only nutrition or only psychology or only meditation. And I think there's so much value in people to do that. You know, I get that from an educational standpoint. I get it from a business and marketing standpoint. That's just not me, not only because I have a collective interest, but if I'm interested in integrating all those different things to really figure out to draw on the best of different traditions to kind of compare things, to think about what works, what doesn't work, what are the limitations of each, how might they complement each other, then it needs to be an integrated interdisciplinary approach. And I will absolutely own up to being a generalist, not a specialist. And a specialist is someone who dives really deep in one particular area and demonstrates mastery and competency. And I think that's great. What I enjoy doing is listening to a lot of people and reading a lot of people who are specialists, who are masters in their their domain and figuring out the connections between those dots and distilling that information for other people and figuring out for myself what that means in terms of how my exercise regime might mix with my nutrition and how what I'm drinking can affect my cognitive performance and how my mental health and my physical health is connected. And so... That is why there's an eclectic mix of topics on the show, and there always will be. I believe the brilliance of any particular approach tends to be 
also its shortcoming. You know, it's the whole notion of the double-edged sword of, of character or, or of a particular methodology. And the brilliance of the Western scientific approach is its precision, right? And at the same time, this sort of reductionism is its limitation as well. It leads to a particular sort of tunnel vision where we're not able to connect the dots between different vital areas of the ecosystem. And this is the value of more holistic approaches, different worldviews. This is in particular, I think, a lot of the value of Eastern approaches and Eastern ways of looking at the world. And so people who listen to this show will know that I'm very interested in ways to in- integrate Eastern and Western ways of thinking. How do we combine the traditional with the modern? How do we maintain a commitment to rational thought and using evidence to form conclusions while also acknowledging the value of the esoteric and the mystical and just having humility to say there's so much that happens beyond what we can know, whether it's at the unconscious level of the self or whether it's what's happening out there in the material world. So I'm taking a look back at those first 20 shows and and seeing that while there was an eclectic mix of things, there was a very heavy emphasis on plant medicine, psychedelics, and I'm happy that I did that. And I'm going to continue to have conversations with people who are interested in psychedelics. And occasionally an episode might focus on that. At other times, I'm sure many conversations were intersect with psychedelics or plant medicine. But I also want the show to not focus too much on any one particular topic. And so it's going to expand beyond that. Now, one format I'm thinking about for the show is really doing things in terms of series, like perhaps tackling a particular topic for a certain amount of time, whether it's, say, you know, a month, four weeks, four episodes, or whether it's a few months, but then being able to sort of come up with themes and genres that people could dive into, people could pick and choose what interests them. And also that's the kind of thing I know that people enjoy viewing on YouTube when it's around sort of a series of ideas. So that's sort of my thinking on my reflection on where the show's been and my thinking on how it will evolve in the future. I have some pretty clear ideas in mind on what I'd like to tackle, but I would also love to hear from the audience in terms of what types of topics and content would interest you, what type of structure of the show and format would be most appealing to you. This leads to, and I should say as well, you can contact me at uh, email's great, hackingtheself at gmail.com. Twitter is wonderful, at hackingtheself is the handle. There's also a Hacking the Self Facebook page. Any of those are great. Obviously, social media is ideal for promoting a conversation, but if you prefer email, by all means, emailing me at hackingtheself at gmail.com is, is a great way to be in touch and share your feedback as well. So on that note, you know, one thing that I will sort of make a, a brief pitch for before I introduce Mitch here is that being about five months into this venture now, I really have come to appreciate how much time it takes up producing these shows. I knew that it would take up more time than I thought, and that's what people always said. But of course, you've got to do something to really appreciate how much time it takes up. I can tell you that it has consumed most of my week, most of my work week. And I'm sure 
that will, you know, a lot of those things I'm getting more efficient at. And a lot of these things I'm just paying to outsource, even though there is no revenue from the show yet. Like I have outsourced the production of the show. I am outsourcing some SEO and beginning to think about marketing for the show. And even though I'm bringing in no income now, I want to be able to connect with people and reach a larger audience and build more of a community. So I'm willing to take on those expenses. But I really have come to appreciate other people who make podcasts and and just how much of not only their sweat and their time, but also their own money that it costs. So, and because of this, I've actually begun to give more. I now give regularly, even if it's anywhere from just a few dollars to $10 to podcasts that I listen to regularly. And so that I really would encourage people if you find any value from this show, as well as other podcasts that you listen to, please consider giving some money on patreon.com if you know that podcast that you listen to use those this podcast does it's patreon.com slash hacking the self i think that we need to come to view valuable creative projects as something that we're willing to pay a tiny bit of money for we're all used to getting something for free and i'm every bit as guilty of that as anyone else but i want to be able to not only deliver quality products I want to deliver something that is truly a responsive to the audience for whom it's designed and second of all, that is total commitment to intellectual honesty that is not beholding to corporations. I do not want to take ad money. I also just on a less ideological grand level, I just find ads really annoying. I always skip through them and perhaps at some point on this show, I'm going to end up just doing ads because people aren't willing to give and people would rather just say, yeah, you know, go ahead and have ads and I'll just skip through them. And maybe that's the case. I'd rather try to avoid that. So I would really ask if you're enjoying the show, just view it as honestly, you know, one of the people I listen to, Sam Harris says, it's it's like, think about like listening, you're willing to spend a few bucks on a cup of coffee. You've got to be willing to, perhaps people should view willing to pay for quality content that way. I would say even much less than a cup of coffee. If you know people gave $1 an episode, that would just go such a long way to covering production costs, not to mention making it a viable, sustainable project. And at this point, you know, at, at some point I'd really like to make it sustainable and have some sort of income, even though it's small, because I really want to be able to bring these conversations to people, to bring quality, interesting thought-provoking, unfiltered, intellectually honest conversations. But I've got to find a way to make that viable. In the meantime, I'm not even at a point yet where it's about income. I'm really just trying to cover production costs at the show, which I'm a long way off of. So end my spiel there. But if you're willing to support the podcast by giving truly even a dollar an episode, which would be $4 a month, or whatever you can do, even if it's less, even if it's more, I I would really appreciate your support. So thank you. Consider it. And like I said, truly, if this is your first time listening to this podcast and you're not going to give to a podcast you give once to, I'd ask you to think about giving to the podcast that you give regularly to, because you know I, I just think we need to support creative projects that we value to promote the spread of good ideas and thoughtful discussions. So with that said, I'd like to introduce today's guest, Mitch Schultz. Mitch Schultz is a 
documentary filmmaker who studied communication and information theory, undergraduate at the University of Texas at Austin, and did his graduate work in media at NYU, New York University. He's produced several films on psychedelics and directed them, most famously DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and more recently, Ayahuasca, Drink the Jungle, which he co-produced with Aubrey Marcus. Mitch and I get into discussing a number of topics on the show, not only DMT and ayahuasca, but also consciousness, how working with plant medicine and psychedelics was incredibly helpful and healing to Mitch on a personal level in terms of depression and trauma that he experienced and how it can help others. And then we got into more, yes, more lofty topics as well on the nature of consciousness. So there'll be some detailed show notes if you want to skip around, but Mitch is a brilliant guy who I had the pleasure getting to know a little bit in person at a psychedelic conference in Australia. And it was really fun to continue my conversation with him and share this conversation with others online. So thank you for listening. And with that said, I give you my conversation with Mitch Schultz. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. That, thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. Absolutely, man. Well, it was so much fun to meet you in person at the EGA conference in Australia, outside Melbourne, and get to know each other a little bit. And it's great to be having this conversation now. Yeah, thanks for following up. It was a great conference down there. So always good to continue those conversations after the fact. Absolutely. And it was so neat to meet you in person. So just to give some context for our audience, we were having dinner together on the first night. It was a group of us. And I just sort of walked over to this table where I didn't know anyone. And we were talking for about 20 minutes. And you and I had really been chatting quite a bit, I think, in particular. And, and one of the guests pointed out that you were, um, I said, what do you do? And you said, I make films. I said, oh, cool. And one of the other guests goes, he's being modest. He's the guy who made the DMT, the spirit molecule. And I was like, oh, I fucking love that film. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. What, it was an amazing experience to put that thing together. I, yeah, so much, so much beauty, so much knowledge, so much time, effort, but it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, I definitely want to talk about that for sure. Let's start out with just telling folks a, a little bit about yourself. So where are you from and how did you become interested in documentary filmmaking to begin with? Yeah, well, I grew up more or less in Texas in between San Antonio and Austin, but have lived kind of all over the states from Colorado, Minnesota, New York, um, traveled quite a bit. And as far as how I got into documentaries or maybe just film in general, you know, it really came through reading Jim Morrison's biography. <laughs> it was a funny story behind that. I was, you know, young teenager and checking out uh, one of my, I was a big fan of The Doors and just thought, wow, I'm going to read this book about Jim Morrison. And as I'm getting through it and learning more about him, one of the things I was unaware of was prior to his music career, he was very interested in becoming a filmmaker. And so went to study film at UCLA, and one of his first film projects was to create a short film, and the whole class had to come back and present these. And his film, needless to say, was a little controversial, especially at the time. 
there was Nazism and sadomasochism and a lot of things that were extremely charged, uh, particularly in the early 60s. And there was such an uproar in the class. So many people just got very angry and were yelling. And as the story goes, Jim Morrison just stood up, walked out of the class and said he would never make film anymore. And it wasn't necessarily for the content of the film, but it was the reaction that, that I saw from his classmates that really intrigued me. And being able to elicit responses and emotional responses, extremely powerful. And I thought, wow, what, a, what an amazing thing to be able to do, but hopefully switch that. So you know, I've always been interested in making positive media. If you could do that with the negative side, then you could also do it with a positive approach I and mean, hopefully in ways to benefit the world and to get people to think differently about their situations or what's going on and hopefully make change for the better. I and mean, so it was really that moment um, as a young teenager that got me to say, I want to be a filmmaker. And it kind of led me on my way. That's so fascinating. First of all, I remember the scene because it's in it's, that scene is pretty much just as you described it exactly as how it's shown in Oliver Stone's document or I guess not documentary but film on the doors that's right he did put that in there correct yeah yeah so when you were describing that I was like yeah I remember that like exactly as you described it and I like that it's sort of funny what turned him off turned you on <laughs> right <laughs> And it, it, it was something about that. It just resonated with me. And, I, you know, I grew up a bit of a rebel, I will say. And um, I think probably some of that has carried into my adult life. And, but it was, it was more of like, wow, what, what could we do with media and the power of that for good? So here I am. <laughs> you say you were a rebel. What were kind of some of the questions that intrigued you that sort of, yeah, engaged your interest when you were younger? And, and how did that possibly connect to where you are today? Sure. Great question. There were, I've always had a very curious mind, never really taking what I was told by either my parents or teachers or authority figures as truth. And yeah, there was a bit of a challenge to that. But at the same time, it was like, wow, I, I'm experiencing other things that seem to be in conflict or different than what I'm being told. And that always led me to try to, what is that? What is that unsolved mystery? What is that connection to all world spirituality? Why are we here? You know, just that big question that humanity's asked for forever. Uh, there were, and I, you know, a little more specific, I, I had experiences when I, were, when I was young prior to even coming in contact with psychedelics that were nothing other than mystical, uh, some being alien almost, and those experiences had a different resonance to them than just this kind of three-dimensional world that we all kind of take for granted. And this is very materialistic approach to how we're living. I knew that there was something more than, than what we were just sensing here in the world. And so that kind of was an underlying driving force for me to just dive into the unknown in a lot of ways. Do you feel comfortable elaborating on what some of those experiences were? Sure. I'm curious. Yeah, no worries. It's always strange getting into some of these, but these, let's see, I'll start furthest back as I can remember. Some of my earliest memories had contact with entities is probably the best way I can describe that. And some of them seemed alien. I even have a tattoo on myself of these creatures, of one set of creatures that I had an experience with when I was very young. It was one of the most horrifying experiences that I've ever had because these two and I'll just say alien, were tickling me. 
and tickling me beyond control to that really uncomfortable place of like, this is not a happy, uh, feel good kind of thing. But it, it's, it's still so etched in my mind in so many ways. I could close my eyes and almost still picture them exactly like the experience, or at least from what I can remember from that experience. I've had other experiences. I, there was when I was just a young child, probably six or seven. I would want to see my closet, and I know that just sounds very strange, but every time I was in my closet and I would go in there to sleep, I would always come in contact with a witch. And this witch was knew that I was there, but never did anything. I was never afraid of her. It was just kind of inhabiting the same space, and it was only in that closet. And then throughout my life, there's been other experiences that some could be like angelic and when I was younger, I would my parents, when I would tell them about these, were concerned. They would take me to psychiatrist and try to explain what this was. There was no diagnosis or anything that would say, oh, this is something we need to look into or medicate, because I feel like I'm a very grounded individual. But I learned how to just kind of shut up about them over time, because I did get the strange looks, and I would take to doctors and things like that. But there were, as far as I knew, there was nothing wrong with me. I was just having experiences that were otherworldly. Can I clarify, were these during the day, during the night, were you dreaming at all or was this very much awake? A combination of all of that. I'd say the majority of them, though, were kind of in that in-between sleep and awake state. I don't know if you're familiar with sleep paralysis, where you can have complete consciousness and be widely awake, but you can't move your body whatsoever. And that usually happens either coming out of sleep or going into, into sleep. And I had that pretty regularly. And, and typically when that happens, there are entities uh, that are in the room, but there's nothing that you can do. The body is not responding to that typical fight or flight kind of situation. So it was a combination, but I'd say the majority of them were kind of in that in-between state. They're also, just briefly, there's a different resonance to these experiences than kind of my normal day-to-day awakening when they happen. I get different sensations um, on my neck and in my head. And they, they seem realer than real, if I could say that. Uh, they seem to not just be a hallucination. And one of the most fascinating parts about all experiences leading up to the first time that I, I tried DMT was the moment I came back from my first DMT experience, all of those things made sense. And there was no shame and there was no, oh my gosh, is that just a hallucination? They all solidified into this is part of life and this is you know something other than just your normal waking experience. So say more about that. You know, how do you now interpret these experiences after having done psychedelics and and what do you mean by they make sense now? Well, I think that we have, let me back up here. The the human sensory inputs are very limited into what we are picking up of what all is going on around us. We see a very small section of the electromagnetic light field. We hear a small section of of audio, and it goes beyond just the hearing and the seeing. There are so many other things that are happening that our perception, our conscious perception in our day-to-day waking life is only picking up a fraction of that. So there are so many other things happening outside of our normal senses. I think that you get glimpses, and I think there are certain times that you can peek behind the curtain, so to speak, and have experiences that... I think there are beings and other energies around us at all times. And I think consciousness is probably pervasive throughout the entire universe. It's not a result of humanity. Consciousness, I think, is embedded into the universe. 
and is waking up to itself at all times. Interesting. So by entities, I mean, it's what we conceive of as maybe ghosts or someone in sort of a purgatory or bardo phase or aliens, any number of these things, all the above? Any number of those. And I would even caution to not even put it into a religious framework of, you know, into a purgatory or a bardo and into a particular place of being stuck, because I think it's more of a fully inhabited space. And even to the extent of when we look out into the universe and we know that there is, you know, this dark matter, which we can't see, but we know is there because the way it's interacting, I get a sense that that is inhabited with other types of electromagnetic fields and different soundscapes and, and literally different physical space and time. Interesting. Well, we can certainly circle back to this when we get more into DMT and ayahuasca, because I, I, having had those experiences, I can appreciate where you're coming from. But I want to hear a little bit more about, so how did you then sort of go from this sort of early interest in storytelling and filmmaking to actually becoming a documentary filmmaker and getting the idea for the spirit molecule? Sure. Yeah. Well, it was, I was living in New York at the time and finished up grad school and had been working in the independent film world. And that, you know, encompassed everything from independent feature, doc, feature documentaries to just independent uh, feature films, commercials, music videos, branded content, just kind of whatever I could do and get my hands on uh, as far as work. And that was kind of the way I was going about it. And then that experience, uh, my first DMT experience being in New York, uh, that really solidified like, okay, Mitch, this is the film that you need to go make. Uh, and that was my first film or first documentary to go out and direct and produce by myself. Not by myself, I had others that were helping me with that, but to, to direct. That was my first directing project, and it was really the experience that led me in that direction. Tell us more about that first experience. So living in New York, I was getting ready to start my last year of grad school, actually, and uh, my housemate at the time was from Brazil, and he was getting ready to move back to Brazil. And so a few people from school were getting together to just hang out, is what I was told. I, I got a phone call from my friend. He's like, hey, you need to come hang out tonight. I uh, kind of was like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to do that. And you know, he's like, no, you need to come over. And that's all I kept hearing was you need to come over. You need to come over. And when I got there, somebody had, had brought DMT with them. Uh, I'd never heard of DMT prior to this, although I had had many other psychedelic experiences prior to that. Um, never heard of DMT and did my best to kind of say, okay, uh, you know, sure, I'm, I'm down with doing this. And the way it was presented was that you know, most of the lights were turned off. There was no music. It was administered one person at a time. I was the third person to take it. And watching the other two people prior to me, nothing really seemed to happen. They did their inhalations. They laid back, eyes closed, and, and that was about it. I would say after my second toke or inhalation, I started to see the room and the physical objects in the room almost dematerializing. And I just describe it as like being able to almost see the, the atomic structure, but still seeing the physical form. And of course, that's quite alarming when <laughs> your physical world kind of starts to dematerialize. And the guy that was introducing me to this said, you got to take one more, take one more. And so somehow I was able to do that. Within that first minute of the experience, don't have really any recollection uh, of what was going on from people in the room, they were just saying, I've never seen a look of fear that was, it was very profound. It was on your face. Cause I had a sense that I was dying. Um, I had a full kind of, I'm now looking back an ego death, but a full death experience of 
wow, this is what's happening. I'm actually dying. I remember having a thought in my head of, oh, my parents are going to find out about this. This is bad. But everything was happening so fast. Information's flying by me, thoughts. Again, the material world is kind of dissipating in front of me. But then after that first minute or so, I kind of found myself in a large dome space, almost like, um, oh, is that many contact where uh, Jodie Foster goes back to see her father. And it was like a, a huge dome space, but fractal light kind of all over the dome. Things were shifting and morphing extremely quick. And once I got into that space, I calmed down quite a bit. And it was probably at the time, one of the most beautiful experiences that I had ever had. There was a face that appeared out way in the distance, way at the, the macro level. And as soon as I recognized that face, and it almost was cat-like, and, and I remember it being feminine as well, it shot down right in front of my face in a split second. And it was this constant jumping back and forth. This face kept doing that. It was the kind of the, the whole experience, but it was extremely fascinating and beautiful, and I would even say loving. And then I... Came back into the room probably after about 10 minutes um, of being away and out of, you know, what I would say, out of my body or out of the physical space that I was inhabiting. And again, right when I came back, uh, I had this sense again that all of those experiences that I had prior to that that didn't make a whole lot of sense or that were very profound made sense and they were okay. And yeah, it's a very quick experience. And it's amazing how much you can fit in in 10 minutes. That was the first experience. And, that, and really, at the same time of that kind of realization of these experiences making sense, I also, almost immediately of coming back from that, knew that I was going to make a, a film on DMT. Okay. So then t walk us through that. You know, this was what year you had your first experience and how many years did that take to shoot the film and how did that progress? Sure. So it was in 2002 when I had my first experience. And that experience really shattered my whole understanding of reality. And it took me a good four years, I feel, to kind of piece things back together and come up with kind of a new framework for how I was perceiving the world and what I thought reality was. So I spent a good you know, chunk of time during those four years researching as much as I could and, and just reading accounts, revisiting stuff from Terrence McKenna, and then came across Dr. Strassman's book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. And, and once I read that book, I knew that that was the direction to take a documentary film, was this kind of blending of science and spirituality because it was so otherworldly and so out there. And when you describe these experiences to people, especially people that have not had them, they, it sounds ludicrous. It sounds crazy. But here is a man, traditional Western doctor, and he had done human research. And I thought, wow, that's, that's kind of the, the groundwork that I need to be able to tell this, this story. And probably 2006, I think that was, yeah, it was about four years later that I, I contacted Dr. Strassman and just started a dialogue with him during that year saying, hey, I'd love to make this movie and kind of just starting setting up how we would do that, talking to lawyers. And then in 2007, we started shooting, I guess it was January, and we spent about three years shooting and then a couple years actually editing the project together and doing all the post-production. So it was, it was a five-year, almost six-year process from the time I contacted Dr. Strassman 
to actually get it all there. And, and people kept telling me from the very beginning, um, when you're making an independent documentary in general, it's it's going to take you at least five years. And I and I was like, nah, it's never going to take that long. But sure enough, it is a long process, and we had a lot of interview footage to go through and really try to boil down some of the the most interesting parts and find that story. So it was a five year process. Wow. Why does it take so much longer to make a documentary film? Yeah, part of it is it is a financial and business aspect of it. They don't necessarily return anything, so investors are, are difficult to find. I think in our case, it was that, but it was also the content and the subject matter of the film. That anytime I would go out and start having conversations about raising funds for this or looking for investors, you said psychedelics and people ran the other way very quickly because there was such a knee-jerk reaction from all the propaganda that was put out back in the, in the 70s, 80s, and, and even into the 90s about how we understood psychedelics. And, and that's changing drastically these days, but it's embedded pretty deeply into the psyche of folks. And, and it, it took time to find the right folks to understand what we were trying to do and what we were trying to say. And, and most of our investors came from people that have had these experiences and, and knew the power of the experience. So I think that was it. Yeah. I mean, I want to walk through more of the, the lessons you learned from shooting the, the spirit molecule, but just as kind of a comparative analysis, since I know you just put out this film pretty recently about, on ayahuasca, which was just in the last year or two, right? I'm curious, you know, the landscape has changed a lot in terms of cultural attitudes towards psychedelics with psychedelic research. I'm curious, when you went to get funding for this, um, did you see that change reflected in your ability to secure financing? Well, definitely. And my uh, collaborator and business partner on that, Aubrey Marcus, he was the, the executive producer that, that put the funding together. He had had these experiences. And so, again, he was well aware of the power that they have and in, in wanted to get that message out there as well. And, and yeah, over that, gosh, I can't believe it now, but it's, <laughs> it's been seven years roughly since we put out the spirit molecule. We weren't having conversations about medical use of psychedelics, and that's looking like a pretty good possibility in the next several years in the United States. So to see it, the dialogue change that quick, things are opening up very quickly. And more and more people, especially from folks that in the past would not have been interested in this, are changing their tune because of some of the research that's coming out. So money's opening up, um, and potentially in the next three years, like I said, the FDA and the DEA will um, have MDMA and potentially psilocybin for for treatments. Amazing. Fantastic. It really is. There's a lot of trauma in this world and I can speak from personal experience that these things can help dramatically if done with respect and in the right set and setting. Absolutely. As I can too, and as can many others. And I want to get into that more when we talk about ayahuasca in particular, but let's talk a little bit more about The Spirit Molecule because that was such a rich film. And I want to hear really kind of what were your biggest takeaways from doing that project? I'd say right off the bat, there is still so much that we do not, we really just don't understand consciousness. And in, and in many ways, I think science has almost been afraid to approach the subject because it is such an unknown. And, and even in general, science really doesn't know a whole lot, although they would lead us to believe that they do. And, and yes, we have had a lot of amazing discoveries and things that have come through the scientific method. But consciousness really is the thing that sits at the center of everything that we do. And we have no clue as to what it is, why it's there, how it does what it does, and its role in general. So that was really the big takeaway in talking to some of these amazing 
academics and philosophers that we interviewed for the film, and these are folks that have been at this for, for some time and are extremely intelligent and articulate, would say that over and over again. We just, we just don't know. We don't know what this is. And so that was pretty fascinating to me. And on a personal level, that also resonated. Like, I, I don't know anything. It really challenged everything that I knew and humbled me in a lot of ways, uh, which I am very thankful for. So I'd say those are the two big things. And at the same time, we can also change that, especially with society and with our research and how we're going about kind of everything that we're doing in our day-to-day lives. We can start to address some of these issues. And even in the last, like I said, seven years, when there wasn't any talk about psychedelics being part of a medical treatment, that's happening now. And so there's, I have a lot of hope for that to, to make a big difference. In terms of how your understanding of the DMT experience evolved, you know, and you had a lot of people on your documentary who were just, you know, top people in the field in terms of ethnobotanists and pharmacologists and chemists. Did you at least come closer to some sort of satisfactory explanation in terms of what's happening in the brain that could possibly induce that kind of experience? I don't think we did. You know, I think we asked a lot of questions. It was never my intention when making the movie to try to find the answer. Um, I think we have a long ways to go with that. But just being able to ask the questions and entertain them and play around with them and, and use curiosity to explore them, we didn't come up with any solid answers. My personal take on this, and this is from a very non-scientific approach, DMT is a kind of a basic building block. It comes from amino acids that that literally make physical matter from from code almost. So could this be an underlying language for kind of all living things? It's taking a software code from a DNA and building physical matter out of it. And in, again, another broad stroke, I think what's happening on the, in the experience is being able to pull the curtain back, get rid of all of these filters that we have, and peer into real-time construction of how we understand space and time and our, our reality. And I know that's a huge claim and it sounds a little outlandish, but that's, that's kind of where I've cut what I've come to at this point. Most people, the, the big debate on, on psychedelics is, is this your brain on drugs or is it really opening up to a whole nother world that exists around us that's there all the time that we get to peer at? I think it's a combination of both of those in a way. Why would we have the experience if it wasn't for the substance that you were taking? And why are we perceiving all these other things around us? I think it's a combination of them. Yeah. And just to sort of maybe help out some of our, our listeners, I think most of them will know uh, some of the basics, at least about DMT, but maybe for some sure. people who don't. Your statement, who might be a little surprised or overwhelmed by your statement, but certain things we know about DMT are, we know that it is already found in our bodies. We know that it's found in animals. We know that it's found in many plants. Strassman's sort of hypothesis that it's in the penile gland, as far as I know, is still a hypothesis and has not been proven. But we know that we have DMT in ourselves, in animals and in plants, correct? That's correct. And even Dennis McKenna says that in the film, every living creature, plants, animals, everything, have the two precursors to make DMT. So we don't know that it's in everything, but potentially DMT is in every living organism. All that aside, yes, we do know that it's in the human body. We know that it passes, passes through the blood-brain barrier. It's in our lungs. It's in our urine. 
what is that? I don't think nature and evolution has just produced, you know, these throwaway molecules just for the hell of it. There's a reason and there's, it's, it's being used in some way in not just our day-to-day bodily functions and physiology, but also I think our interpretation of reality. Yeah, I think this is something that is quite unique about DMT and therefore ayahuasca for that reason, which really even makes it more absurd when we talk about prohibition versus you know any other drug, whether it's another psychedelic like psilocybin or LSD or marijuana or alcohol. It's you're basically you're saying you can't put something in your body which you already have in your body. Exactly, right. which your body Terrence naturally produces. Yeah, Terrence said it. We're all guilty. We're all carrying right now. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. It really is the height of absurdity. Yeah, and, and that to me begs the question of why aren't we researching this more? Because it is in our bodies and it, and it is, I think, playing a major role. Why aren't we looking into this? What, what is going on with consciousness and DMT? Why do people have very regularly have very similar experiences under the effects of DMT? So I think we should be researching this stuff a lot more. Well, I think Graham Hancock in your film gave the most persuasive explanation as to why we haven't been researching it more, which is that our society mainly privileges anything that cultivates a mindset of productivity, you know, and production, anything that fosters and is in line with a capitalist model. Um, That's why we're okay with stimulants, right? That's why we're okay with, you know, fine if people want to take a little break from reality and have a hangover with alcohol, but it's not fundamentally challenging the paradigm, you know, the way that psychedelics do. And in, in fact, when I was younger, I mean, I've been diagnosed with ADHD since I was, you know, eight and I was on medication, including Adderall for a number of years. And I'm not knocking it because it certainly served its role for a time and really had a positive impact. But, you know, when I started taking that, I was probably a sophomore in high school and I had read all this Huxley Brave New World a year or two earlier. And I thought, oh, this makes total sense. In (laughs) the future, you're not going to need a prescription for this you're going to, they're going to give this away to everyone because this is the perfect drug for capitalism. It's all about productivity and it hasn't become fully legal, but it is, its use has expanded way beyond those for whom it was prescribed. And notably, who's it most popular with? It's most popular among the hardworking, the privileged, the most ambitious people. Right. Yep. Keeps them plugging along, keeps them ahead of the game, if you will. And I like what Graham says there. You know, at at the same time, I think that it's also beyond just that. And as evolution, and I I try to look at the big picture and, and think that change is something that is underlying everything that we do as humans and the entire natural world for that matter. Capitalism is just a phase that humanity is going through. And I, I, I think we're starting to see some of the downfalls of that system and that way of being. And, and I, there will be a new system and new ways of being that evolve from that. And so I'm hopeful that some of these things can be explored more and when we get outside of let's just go make a buck and be successful. Absolutely. I don't think we're predestined to do that forever. I think it only explains why well, there's been resistance up until now. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it challenges everything. It really, you know, those those experiences really do challenge not just the go succeed capitalistic approach, but really the underlying basis of reality and spirituality. Um, right. So, yeah. 
So let's talk about how did you then become interested after doing the spirit molecule? How many years later was it that you began to work on the ayahuasca film? Yeah, well, we probably in 2014, so a good three, three and a half years later, Aubrey contacted me and said, look, I've got an idea. I'd love to just take some friends and colleagues down to Peru. And prior to the ayahuasca film, we shot Wachuma, which is kind of a companion piece for the ayahuasca film. And the first thing that we did when we went down there is we had a small group of people and we went and did Wachuma, which is also known as San Pedro, uh, or as it's a cactus, has been used for thousands of years down in the, or outside of the Amazon, really over in the, in the Andes. And we put ourselves through three ceremonies over about a week time period and just shared those experiences. And then I guess four months after we shot that, we went down and we shot the ayahuasca film and we had some different people with us and some of the same. And again, just put ourselves in front of the camera and, and shared what we were going through. Uh, it had never been my intention to, to be in front of the camera, but when Aubrey reached out, he, he said, look, I think we should be able to share on a very personal level, you know, what's happening here to try to educate people because there's been such a boom in ayahuasca tourism and just ayahuasca spreading out all over the world. A lot of people are interested in what's happening and what it is and how it unfolds and what the experience is like. And so that was really our main thing was just to go down and share what was happening to us during the experience and outside of the experience and looking back and reflecting on what was going on. So that was 2014, 2015, and then released that thing in, I guess it was the end of 2015, 20, early 2016, Ayahuasca came out. Yeah, well, I'm glad Aubrey did make that suggestion because I watched the Ayahuasca film yesterday and I thought that it added a lot to have both of you in there for sure. Yeah, it really, really did. And I thought that, I mean, it was obviously cool and added a little extra layer of it since I knew you personally, but I then got to hear stories into a side of you that understandably we didn't touch on those issues, you know, in our normal conversation. But your story was among the most moving really in the documentary. And if you don't mind sharing it, you know, you you touched on earlier in the conversation on how ayahuasca can really be so helpful in terms of healing with trauma. If you could share a little bit about your own experience, that could really, I think, help people to get a different perspective. Absolutely. Well, I will say, you know, off the bat, I've struggled with depression throughout my entire life. And what they've started to see is that ayahuasca is almost a, a, a natural antidepressant. Now, I'm not saying that this is a cure-all and it's a magic bullet that you just go take once and then you're done. But what it does is help open you up to how certain things in your life have affected you and how they continue to play out. In particular, uh, in the ayahuasca film, it's almost seven years ago to the day I lost my brother in an accidental overdose. And it was from opiates. He had been drinking and we were on his bachelor party. Oh my gosh. And several of us had gone to bed. I woke up the next morning and he was not responsive and did my best to do CPR. But I I knew in my heart that he had already gone. That it's extremely shocking. It was the most challenging thing that I've ever dealt with in my life. And I feel like seven, it's taken a good seven years to kind of get myself back on my feet. And what happened during those ayahuasca sessions is revisiting that space and revisiting because I couldn't get his face out of my head. It was, um, you know, it is post-traumatic stress. 
and then kept having to relive that and the the underlying emotions uh, were making it extremely difficult to do it live day to day. But what the ayahuasca was able to do, at least in those experiences, was take me back to those, understand them from different perspectives, and get rid of a lot of the questions and the guilt. And not that I, I don't miss him and that I'm still not sad that he's not there, but was able to kind of come to terms with some of that and, and make some changes in my, in my psyche to heal that. And even was able to experience him kind of moving on, which I didn't really understand how my psyche was holding on to him and, and was able to see that release, literally see that released in the ayahuasca experience. And going through that at the time can be harrowing. It can be overwhelming. This is not an easy thing to go do by any means. Ayahuasca can make you physically ill, at the same time presents you with experiences that are, are very challenging and really get at the core of why you understand things a certain way. But I will say emphatically that psychedelics in general, but particularly ayahuasca, have, have saved my life. I don't think I would be here today if it was not for these substances and giving me insights into not only myself, but a much broader world. And, and these aren't for everybody. I really like to, to say that these are not for everybody, but for those that have a calling for this, they can be extremely, extremely beneficial, extremely beneficial. So it was a big thing in my life and, and I miss my brother every day. I think about him. He was not only my little brother, but he was my best friend. But at the same time, it also opened me up to, we all know we're going to pass on at the end of life. But I find that in Western society, we don't talk about that very much. And we don't have any way of really trying to put some sort of container. In many ways, we try to block it out and pretend like it's not going to happen. And then when it does happen, whether it's a loss of a loved one or something, somebody else, it can be extremely hard to deal with. And I, I would hope that we could start dialoguing about this and understanding life and death differently than we do in the West. Because I think there are ways that we can celebrate those lives and understand them differently and even make changes in our own lives because of it, if we can do that. That's so well said. I mean, you said several points. First of all, Mitch, I just want to say so much first that I'm so sorry for your loss. And I can only imagine how incredibly painful and challenging that was. And at the same time, I'm so heartened and happy to hear that you did find healing through anything and that it was ayahuasca in this case. And as powerful as it was, I have to say, you know, I'm not surprised. And I'm sure other people who have done work with ayahuasca would say the same thing. And for those out there who might be skeptical, I'd encourage you to take Mitch's story as a source of inspiration to learn more. You don't have to take it as gospel, but I think if you'll, the more you read, and I'll, I'll say this from doing an ayahuasca ceremony myself, you know, there were 20 people there. I think there were maybe two or three people there for consciousness exploration. I mean, basically, overwhelmingly, everyone was there because they had some sort of trauma, you know, serious trauma. I mean, cancer survivors, husband committed suicide, sexual abuse, like on HIV positive, on and on down the line. And to hear what it did for people was uh, absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, it's a, it's a message that has to get out there. 
Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I do what I do because there's so much trauma in this world. There's so much trauma. And if we can just provide glimpses of hope for people and an ability to actually go out and change some of that, man, I'm all for it. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we trying to help people get better and feel better and understand themselves better? And then even considering the opiate issue that we're having in the United States and partly around the world, but we're losing people all the time. And it's and it's getting extremely, extremely out of control. And this is not just from heroin overdoses. This is pharmaceutical overdoses as well. And a lot of people being put on opiates and getting addicted and not being able to get off. And there's another psychedelic out there called Iboga or Ibogaine, uh, which is the pharmaceutical version. I hate to go there with it, but uh, that is getting, it's allowing people to come off of opiates and saving lives. And we need to be pursuing that. And the fact that we can't do that, and we still think that by outlawing all of these substances, that that's the way that we're going to take care of the issue. I think we've seen that, that prohibition does not work. And if anything, it just makes the issues a lot more challenging. And it also brings along organized crime to boot. Absolutely. And if anyone out there wants to read a book on that, that, you know, if they're open-minded, read uh, Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream. I mean, that's a masterpiece. I'm sure you've read it. I have not, but I will now that you suggest it. Thank you. Oh my gosh. It's an absolute must read. It's literally the best book anyone could read on the drug war. Yeah, definitely read that. But yeah, something else you said really resonated too when you're talking about in the West, how we don't really want to confront the issues of dying. You know, one thing that I've really noticed from living in Asia for a while is the different attitudes we have about aging. You know, it made me very conscious that It's not like in a lot of Asian countries, there isn't materialism. I mean, there most certainly is. But in Western countries, there's a real obsession with youth and beauty, you know, and in Asian cultures, it's sure it's valued, of course. I mean, beauty is valued, you know, everywhere. There are biological drives for that. But there's also an appreciation for aging and for old people. There's a respect for old people. They don't throw them in a nursery home. People, they stay in the home. People take care of their parents and their grandparents. And we really have lost touch with that quite a long time ago in the West. And it has big consequences, you know, for how we just on a fundamental level, you know, I mean, one day we're all going to be older and and how people go through their life, even at a younger age, you know, if, if you're not facing the fact of dying, it basically means that you're pushing it into the shadow of, of your psyche and that it's influencing you one way or another. And you're right. Other parts of the world, I think have a different understanding of what death is and, uh, and approach their life accordingly because of that different understanding from what I've seen in my experiences, my early kind of mystical experiences, but also psychedelic experiences, I don't see it as death. I think it's a a transfer and I'm not going to say it's heaven or it's beyond that, but this is just a manifestation of physicality that I see our soul, our consciousness, our software program, whatever you want to call it, continues to exist. I see all space and time existing at one point, the past and the future and everything in the middle. So if we could start to maybe just conceptualize what death is, I think we change the way that we live. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I've had a similar intuition as well, um, particularly when I was on ayahuasca. I mean, I was actually 
pretty hardcore atheists, you know, before I had that ex- experience. And, you know, while I would say now the way that I view religion is still metaphorical, I appreciate it as myth. I don't think of God in like a dualistic sense. I don't use the word God. I think in general, I'm just a lot less sure about what I know. Sure. And, <laughs> and that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. You know, it's just, it's, it's, I think it's a lot more about humility and, and there's a lot of mystery, I think, in the universe and just acknowledging that, you know, don't be too sure that, that we know the whole picture. I think we know a pretty tiny piece of it, but our ego tells us both individually and collectively that we know a lot, yeah. right? That's part of it. The, the human psyche is very egoic, even going way back in history to, well, the entire universe revolves around us, you know, starting with everything revolves around Earth. And then, okay, well, everything revolves around our little solar system. We have a tendency to do that. And, and even so much where people have talked about, oh, well, humans are, have disconnected from nature. That's a very egoic thought to me. Well, we're not separate from nature by any means. Yeah, we built buildings and we have air conditioning and we have things that are a lot different than our traditional natural world but we're still very much in nature. We are nature. And it's that kind of ego jumping back up again that we know everything. This is, you know, everything's revolving around us. And again, this comes back to consciousness to me. This is conscious experience trying to understand itself. Well, it's funny that you articulated it that way because I've had this thought over the last six months or so in terms of like a historical kind of viewpoint. You know, it was for a long time we thought, you know, the universe or excuse me, all, all the solar system revolved around the earth, right? Because we think it's all about us, right? And it's totally possible that one day humans could look back on how we are today and say, oh, do you remember when people used to think that consciousness was all located in their head because, you know, humans just think everything revolves around them. Like it's that same explanation just internalized right on a more micro scale. Mm-hmm. And it gets even to, to Einstein's theory of relativity. I mean, it, in a way, everything kind of does revolve not just around our earth, but from our perspective, even in our daily lives, everything does kind of revolve around us or me or, but it is much bigger than that. And if you imagine seven and a half billion people on the planet having everything revolve around them, then how could there be one center point? Right. Right. So the whole DMT and ayahuasca comparison, I think it exposes a flaw in the scientific materialist explanation for some of these things, because if it were simply a question of when a chemical or a compound, you know, hits our brain, then X, Y, Z is going to happen. You know, if it were a totally neuroscientific explanation, then, and correct me if you think I'm wrong here, then roughly, we should expect the same experience from DMT as from ayahuasca. And someone might say, like a pharmacologist, well, it matters how you ingest the drug. Like, it's not going to be the same if you take something orally versus snort it versus shoot it. That's absolutely true. But it's not going to be a fundamentally different experience. You know, like, you're not, cocaine isn't going to be 
you know, feel one way snorting it. And then it's going to be like LSD when you drink it or something like that, you know. And when you do DMT to ayahuasca, and I haven't done a lot of DMT. I've done a little bit and it was a while ago, but I've done more ayahuasca. To me, it seems, yeah, there's some similarities, but in a lot of ways, it was a fundamentally different experience in that that whole experience you have with ayahuasca where you interpret it as this, whether you want to call it plant consciousness or intelligence, where you have this sense of a feminine kind of divine presence, that's not something you get when you just smoke DMT. And to me, that says something that is, there's something going on there that's about more than just the neuroscientific explanation. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with with ayahuasca, and maybe some of your audience may not be familiar with this, but DMT is the psychoactive element in ayahuasca. But it wouldn't work unless you had another, if you, had, if you didn't have the ayahuasca vine which allows your body not to break down the DMT and for that to kind of play out over three, four, five hours as opposed to the quick blast of pure DMT, which lasts for maybe 10 minutes. So there are a lot of other alkaloids and other compounds in the plant material that are also interacting on the body and the mind at the same time, not just the DMT. In in ayahuasca itself, the vine is huge medicinal values and, and causes a purgative release on its own and is really regarded as kind of one of the the teacher plan, if you will, in the Amazon. So I think there are a lot of other compounds and molecules that are interacting uh, with the DMT and the body and the psyche beyond just the vaporized version of DMT. And I think that those have a lot to do with how that experience plays out, how you experience the feminine or um, with DMT, a lot of people talk about it being very mechanical and almost sci-fi and you know really weird, whereas with ayahuasca, there is more of a natural kind of movie playing out as opposed to this kind of psychic rape, if you will. So, so I think there are some other compounds, and, and also set and setting is another big piece of that. Set and setting, for those that are unfamiliar, is who are you with? What's going on around you? What's the space like? How are you psychologically at the time that you are ingesting the substance? And what are the intent of yourself for taking it and the others around you? And the set and setting has a huge impact on how you experience any psychedelic experience. Yeah, thanks for for sort of explaining some of those nuances, Mitch, and also explaining some of the basics with DMT and ayahuasca too. I made some assumptions about the audience, so thanks for clarifying those points for people who might not have known. Yeah. That's always good. So one thing I'd love to segue to, since we've been touching on what these psychedelics, you know, what they raise in terms of issues in consciousness, I know this has really led to interest in sort of what you're doing now, which isn't directly about psychedelics, but it, it your psychedelic interest sort of led here. And it's very much about consciousness. So if you don't mind telling our audience a little bit about your current projects and what you're up to. Sure, sure, you bet. Yeah, I think in general, it's it is about consciousness to me. I I, I want to know more about what is our perception and what what are we perceiving that's telling us what the world is or isn't. And also, because of my psychedelic experiences, I've changed dramatically as a person, and there's been a an ongoing change process that is fascinating to me. And, and you know, I you know I was so sure, let's say ten, fifteen years ago, that this was the way things were. <laughs> there was no changing that. Well, 
that has changed dramatically and, and really light years away from where that thought process was. And so I've been interested in how we develop as individuals, but also how we develop as a species on the planet in our interactions with the rest of the world. And my current business partner, Steve McDonald, who I've been working with now for about five, six years, had been studying some research uh, from a man called Claire w., named Claire W. Graves, uh, who was in New York back in the 50s and 60s, and was looking at human development. And he was teaching traditional models, Maslow's hierarchy, and most of those models at the time went up to seven stages of development in a person's lifetime. You know, we grow from an infant into adulthood, and there's stages that we grow through. This man started his research, and after years of looking at all of the data that he collected and then bringing in other experts from other fields to help him evaluate that data, he found an open-ended system of development and found people that were operating above, like the seventh stage, if you want to call them stages. They're really more like layers on an onion that, that kind of tend to grow as we expand and get a broader sense of who we are as individuals in the world. And it all boiled down to life conditions. You know, what was our life experience and how is you know, that direct life experience is going to determine how we see the world? So the more complex that the world is becoming and the more complexity that an individual has in their lives, the mind and consciousness is going to adapt to deal with greater and greater complexity. So the other big thing that he kind of found there was not just that there were people operating above what traditionally was known as a limit in our evolution, was that they were operating about three stages above what the current you know, majority paradigm is on the planet. So it was kind of a roadmap to the future at the same time. And what this, after researching this now for the last five or six years with my friend and really kind of diving into this, starting to apply this to my own life and seeing how I've moved through different stages of development and, and literally understanding understanding of the world. These are paradigms. And when people talk about paradigm shifts, you have a particular way of understanding the world. And then during a change process, and we all go through them, that changes dramatically into a new way of being. So this is kind of the underlying research and also underlying reason that we're doing what we're doing. The new project is called Adi, and we're creating a, a web platform, also a mobile app that will be utilizing this research to really make sense of the change that's happening on the planet. And also knowing that there are going to be some challenging times ahead for humanity. And I think we're already starting to see those um, around the world. So being able to put some technology into place that can hopefully help smooth that transition period out because there is a huge break in wealth and people that have and people that don't have. We have enough resources and technology on this planet to get rid of hunger. Yet why haven't we done it? And why do we continually have these wars that seem to be fought over sometimes religion or they're really paradigms. These are these are conflicting paradigms that are going against one another. And so how can we start to, to help smooth that transition out? So that's a big, broad sense of what we're doing. And we're working with decentralized and blockchain technologies and 
really trying to get a sense of how we can help humanity to move forward. Yeah. So how does blockchain connect to this? Maybe you could explain a little, basically what blockchain is for those who might not know Mitch and and then explain the connection to consciousness and cryptocurrency. Sure, sure. Well, uh, so blockchain is the technology that is behind Bitcoin and, and all of the other cryptocurrencies that are coming out. And blockchain on a very, in its essence, is a a distributed ledger system. So just like we would traditionally use in economics, this is a decentralized version of a bank, for instance, that records transactions. And then I think it's every 10 minutes, the software looks at what has happened over the entire network, puts all that information into one place. And this is, this is all encrypted. That's the other big thing here is that because it's decentralized, there's no central server, for instance. Bits and pieces of information are all over the place. And then computers around the, around the globe or in the network are crunching numbers and trying to figure out this a math problem that basically makes, takes that block of information that just gathered over the last 10 minutes and then puts it into an encrypted block, but it's also transparent. So people on the blockchain or on a blockchain can look at all the transactions that are taking place. So, you know, the blockchain and Bitcoin, there are a lot of people out there that have their their thoughts on what it is. And, you know, it's a bubble and it's just a big scam. I think it's an evolutionary step forward in how we interact with one another. And just on a, on a pure currency basis money as people have said makes the world go round and and yes i guess it does because we couldn't have goods and services we wouldn't be able to exchange and trade with our countries do all of these things but most of that has taken place in these tight little silos and controlled by governments or large corporations this technology opens it up for everybody to take part in that and it kind of levels the playing field so to speak because it's so early in its development, there are a lot of people trying different things about what blockchain could be used for. Some people are looking at it for the entertainment industry and how we could build part of this or smart contracts into the system. So if I have all of my footage that I've shot for a film, I could put it on a blockchain and people could only access it with um, either a token or with a certain password, depending on their access. And then everybody that accesses that information, I cut out all the middlemen in between. I don't need a distributor anymore. I don't need an agent or I don't need a lawyer to go spend a lot of money to put together a contract. You can build those into the software system. So what we're trying to do, our system right off the bat is not going to be fully a blockchain platform. We're going to create a, a cryptocurrency that is on the Ethereum blockchain. And then we'll be utilizing decentralized technologies to create communication tools. And mainly we're looking, the the platform that we're building is for people that are on the edge that are doing work to try to make the world a better place. And that could be around environmentalism. That could be around how we're pulling uh, resources from the planet. It could be about yoga, anything that is really trying to help heal or make the planet better. So imagine just a network of networks that has full control of their information. They can have private communications where the government or corporations can't listen in and they can have direct communication. And they also own all of their own content, unlike Facebook, where if you put anything on Facebook, they essentially own it. And so it's kind of a combination of a lot of other technologies put in together into one 
but trying to connect the dots of all of these different organizations and people around the world that are looking to make a better, better world. Hmm. That's a really interesting take. And your example of uh, how it could affect the film industry is it helps to kind of bring it down to, to earth and, you know, illustrate the power of it. That's a really, really interesting idea. Thanks. Yeah, it's there. You know, there's a lot of experimentation going on out there in the space with the blockchain. It is brand new. There are even tests right now where I think uh, in Illinois, they are utilizing the blockchain to for birth certificates and essentially for your social security. So your identity is encoded into the blockchain. So any interaction instead of, again, Facebook or Google selling your information and your search results, uh, whether it be to a health company or to a media company or advertising firm, you would be able to decide who that information goes to, who is able to see it and then actually get paid or get some sort of an exchange for sharing that information. And it doesn't fall into the hands of a corporation or a government anymore. It falls back into the hands of the individual. Hmm. Fascinating. You know, to kind of dig into a little bit more with, with crypto, you talked about blockchain versus some of these other currencies and Bitcoin's the, the, well know, the most well-known one because it was kind of the first big one. I'm curious, you know, you've spoken before about Ethereum and you just talked about how your service is going to be available on that blockchain. What exactly is Ethereum? How is it more than just a cryptocurrency? And why are you so uh, particularly keen on Ethereum? Sure. Well, so Bitcoin, like you said, is the first generation of what this software is and a lot of the ideas behind this. Ethereum is kind of that generation. And what they did was they built a blockchain, but it's a platform. So not only is it a currency that they're called the Ether on their platform, but they allow other people to come in and build applications on top of it. So again, you can see any number of different projects that have been built onto the Ethereum blockchain that utilize it. So it opens it up for others to come in. It's like a big sandbox to play around with. And again, some of these are for currencies, but other ones are for a supercomputer, for instance, or other ones are for insurance or for real estate or um, any number of different things that people are experimenting with. So it's it's creating an entire platform for people to come on and, and play and build. And the other thing I really respect and admire about the folks of, at Ethereum and of Consensus, the reason they do what they do is to really make the world a better place on, on many levels. And Joe Lubin, who is one of the co-founders, and, and Vitalik Buterin, who is a young genius coder that's put all that together, those two guys in particular, but even their entire team, the, the whole focus is really about what can we do to evaluate the underlying issues that we're having in society and how can we make it better? And I'm just, uh, I respect the heck out of that because it's not an easy trek and uh, they're doing some amazing, amazing work. Strong ethical focus. Yep. yep. Very much so. Yep. Very altruistic. And there are other projects that are coming out that are now like even third generation, you know, I'm not a super tech guy, but there's some new stuff that's, that's coming out uh, that's allowing scalability on a different level and different approaches to even how we farm or how the can put some sort of not wealth, but just value on the forest, for instance. So instead of cutting it down uh, for people to have cows or to plant something, how do we leave that forest there and then attach value to it so it doesn't need to be cut down? You know, so those are just, you know, another offhand 
project that's out there and, and people really challenging what we're doing in the world and trying to trying to come up with better systems and a lot more efficient systems. Is there a company or technology that's already doing that that you know you could point us to for those who are interested in learning more? Oh gosh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. You know, I would just go to Ethereum. I'd start there and then just do blockchain. I don't know anything off the top of my head, but blockchain use cases, and you'll find all sorts of stuff. And it's changing daily. It's happening so fast. It's it's really fascinating to be part of because it's it daily. There's something new coming out, and there's new technology or a new understanding or a new algorithm that's that's changing the way we're doing all this. So if I come up with some, I'll send them over, and we can attach it to the to the podcast later. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, That'd yeah. be really great. Thank you, Mitch. So I'd love to kind of bring it back to the personal as we reach towards the end of the conversation. And kind of what's on my mind is, you know, you had these profound early experiences with psychedelics and you made several films about them. Your interest in, in those experiences in films also led you to, you know, deeper questions about yourself and life, which you've begun to focus on now. And in, in some sense, you know, your interests have moved on. But I'm wondering to what extent psychedelics are still an important part of your personal practice. And I'll, I'll tell you the reason I ask this is because uh, I'm definitely involved with yoga and meditation. And there's kind of a debate within those communities. And people, even among a lot of people who are advocates, they'll say, yes, those compounds, you know, have a big role early on, but then when you kind of get to a certain point, blah, 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 you know, you sort of can grow out of them or you maintain a particular insight. And I, I know other people too, outside of yoga or meditation, who, who feel that way about their psychedelic experiences. I'm just curious to what extent they are still a part of your own practice. And if they do play a role, what are the particular plants and compounds that are really important to you and why? Sure. Well, uh, they, they still play a huge role in my life. One thing to note is that this isn't an everyday thing or an every week thing, uh, but it is part of kind of a regular meditation that, that I use. And I'd say maybe once a month. Sometimes that could be more than that, sometimes a little less. But what I find is that it's a way for me to almost defrag my internal hard drive with kind of day-to-day -day life building up and stress of work or getting a new project going or relationships and all of these things that, that humans go through, it allows me to go through and kind of recenter myself and, and kind of clean up the noise that's going on in my day-to-day -day life. And at the same time, it's, there's, there's always some healing or trying to understand myself better. But I think these things also offer or they're tools to look beyond and almost explore superhuman abilities and not even superhuman because they're part of us. I and mean, some of that can, I've had full telepathic communicate communications with people and just understanding again, myself, and it might be a particular event or something that I'm trying to figure out a problem or an issue that I'm struggling with or trying to get a different look at psychedelics have a tendency to, to help me do that. And I wouldn't say there's one or another. You know, I work with a, a variety of different compounds um, depending on what's called for. I, I'm fascinated by dissociatives. It could be ketamine or MXE or methoxetamine, as they call it, which is a, a new dissociative. LSD and MDMA for MDMA is an amazing empathetic healing tool. 
but even plant medicines, San Pedro, ayahuasca. I have a whole tool belt, if you will, <laughs> but they are, they're definitely a part of my life. And, and, I, and I think they will for all of my life. And I understand when people say, oh yeah, you kind of, if you, if you've done it, you've had those experiences, you kind of get it. Yes. It doesn't mean that there's not more to learn and understand about yourself. And, and that's where I'm, you know, I'm fascinated as to continue that, that exploration. So it's, and it's, a lot of times the arguments that people have, it's kind of like, oh, you're chasing the dragon. It's, you're just trying to find that next big one. And I don't see that as the case. Um, I'm sure there are some people that, that do that. I really try to have a focus with mine, whether it be for healing or better insight, um, trying to better understand myself. But these aren't frivolous things that I just go out and do. This is really for, you know, it's a very spiritual approach in general. Yeah. On that note, you know, and you mentioned set and setting earlier when we were talking about ayahuasca and how significant that is, no question. I mean, do you have any advice for people out there in terms of cultivating the right set and setting? And I think that can be the the advantage of sometimes when people go down to Peru, right? Or or they go somewhere and it's it's organized for them is because there's this strong container in place. And so I'm wondering, how much of the time do you formally do something like that? Like, do you partake in, in a more formal ceremony versus doing your own thing? And, and when it's the latter, do you have sort of advice for people and how best to maximize that experience? Yeah. When I'm kind of doing my own thing, it's very rare that I would do these things without somebody else there. And when that is the case, you know, there's several things that I make sure of. I, I don't like my phone to be on at all or my computer, the computer might be on because of music, but I make sure that I'm not gonna have any interruptions. I don't like to go out into public at all. I like to stay home, make sure that I have everything that I need. And especially for those that are you know, interested in doing this and looking to set up the right set and setting, I, I would highly encourage having somebody else there, either that has more experience with this or that can at least watch over you to make sure everything's good or be able to provide you if you need anything during the experience. But it doesn't take much at all for a phone call or the door, somebody knocks at the door or if you're out in public, whether that be at a concert or something, for one little thing to trigger and set an experience in a totally different direction. And, and people can have bad experiences. And so minimizing that as much as you can um, will help avoid having that. Music is a very big driver in these experiences and plays a huge role in what the experience is as well. So I would say pick music that's going to be enlightening, that isn't extremely hard or fast or abrasive. Find something that's kind of a, an unfolding or emergent type of kind of softness, if you will. It doesn't always have to be soft, but something that's not going to feel like too intense of energy. So yeah, in a soft, comfortable place, you don't want to have to move around a whole lot and just making sure that the people that you are with have integrity and they're to help you and care for you if need be. That's sound advice. I would certainly echo that, especially on the not doing it by yourself. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do that because I've had a lot of experience, but it's not all the time that that happens. But yeah, having somebody else right. there is, is important and it can help in, in many ways. Thanks, man. It's good advice. So I'll fire off a quick few questions to you, and these can be just short answers. Um, <laughs> I'm not good what at those. Is, oh, you can, <laughs> I'm you kidding, can I'm absolutely <laughs> you can absolutely do long answers. <laughs> I just didn't want you to think I was not being respectful of your time. So 
Is there a particular favorite app that you're using at the moment? Not really, except for I did find one the other day that was really cool, and it's a kid's Lego thing. Um, <laughs> it's called Lego Creator, and they also have another one out that's like an AR version where you can, or a mixed reality where you can build Legos from, you know, in a physical environment. So I, I'm kind of geek out on Legos. And so, yeah, I like the Lego creator thing. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's cool. And my nieces love it too. So every time, you know, I play, play with them. <laughs> I was about to say my wife would love that or little kids. Yes. Either one. Okay. So how about a favorite song? What are you listening to at the moment? Well, let's just say one of my favorites to listen to, especially in ceremony or while under the influence, I'm a big fan of Shulman, who is an Israeli artist um, and an amazing, amazing sound builder, (laughs) sound engineer that just puts together some beautiful landscapes. So Shulman is up there. Yeah. Tipper. How about Tipper? Tipper. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. What book have you read recently that's really uh, sort of provoked your thought? Well, one that I got, oh, I read it years ago. It's probably one of my favorite books. I reread it recently. It's called Geek Love and by a woman named Catherine Dunn. And it is about a family that has a traveling circus or, you know, and they even create a sideshow. And to save the carnival, the mother and the father come up with a plan to ingest her with all sorts of different chemicals and compounds to create, quote unquote, freak children and that are based off of uh, real life side attractions back in the day. But it's a very interesting exploration of family dynamics and exploration of other and the beauty that can come up and, and is around all of us. And it's it can get a little dark and twisted in the story. I will I will mention that, but it's a really fascinating read. Interesting. What book would you say you've gifted the most? I would say the book of life, <laughs> but it's not even a book. It's just about pure experience. I mean, that's about getting out and experiencing life itself and for yourself and not taking what other people have said is life or is reality, but direct experience. Interesting book of life. <laughs> good, luck finding, good luck finding that one on Who Amazon. One? <laughs> we all write that one. That's the thing. We all write yeah. that one. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> what would you say is the best thing you've purchased for $100 or less? I would say <laughs> this might seem a little flowers for my grandmother. And to see her reaction is, is priceless. She's That's a good answer. Like, uh, yeah. I like being able to to help others and at least bring some light into their day. And, and, uh, and it's great when it's family. Cool. That's a good answer. Okay. Last question before we part. What would, if you could put anything on a billboard, what would that be? <laughs> <laughs> anything on a billboard. Explore mind. I like that. Simple as that. Yeah. Simple to the point. And what's more important than that? I think that's a perfect place for us to end. Before we do so, though, Mitch, I want to thank you and also give you an opportunity for you to just let people know about where they can follow you on social media or any upcoming projects that they can keep an eye on or support. 
Absolutely. Thank you. So you can find the DMT Facebook page, which has a lot of followers and we're putting out regular information there, whether it be articles on research or art is the spirit molecule on Facebook. Um, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Mitch Schultz. The new project is adi.org and adi is A-A-D-I-I. That has not fully launched yet, but we expect in the next couple months that that page will be up. And yeah, also the other thing is all of the YouTube, uh, we have a YouTube channel for the DMT film that has all of the footage that we shot. So you can go look at all the different interviews that were not included, and, and it's roughly you know 100 hours of footage. So check out uh, youtube.com slash DMTTSM. Awesome. And we can also include these links in the show notes as well. Great. That'd be great. Cool. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Mitch, for the work that you're doing and keep it up. Yeah, yeah. It was great to connect again and I appreciate it. And um, thanks to all your listeners out there. Okay. Thanks, man. Take care. Thank you so much for those of you who are still listening. I would like to thank you for tuning in and for your time, for your curiosity. And once again, I'd love to hear from you. So would love to hear what you thought about my conversation with Mitch. Positive uh, feedback as well as constructive criticism. Would absolutely love to hear any suggestions on conversations that you might be interested in hearing in the future, potential guests, topics, any feedback on interviewing style or format. Truly open to your suggestions and ideas. And love to hear from you. So you can contact me by either getting in touch with me on Twitter at Hacking the Self. The Hacking the Self Facebook page is great. Or if email is your preference, hackingtheself at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the conversation, I would please ask you to consider sharing it on your social media platforms, as well as telling friends and family about it. And thank you again for listening. And I hope to hear from you and that we'll be in touch in the future. Take care. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hackingtheself. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.